welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. Welcome to today's episode of the Vital and Thriving Podcast. You know, Claire, if I'm remembering correctly, this is episode seven, and this will be the first time we've actually had two guests in a single episode. You are remembering correctly, my friend, and these are not just any two guests. They are two more freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Oh, PLUs, people like us. This sounds so familiar. (laughs) Which officially makes this episode a party. I'm not sure what kind of party, but it is definitely a party. Yes, indeed. Uh, Well, let's get... Let's get our party guests introduced. (laughs) Alyssa Newton serves the Diocese of Olympia as Canon for Congregational Development and St. Columbus Episcopal Church in Kent, Washington as vicar. She also directs the College for Congregational Development in the Diocese of Olympia. And she is co-author with Phil Brochard of Vital Christian Community, 12 Characteristics of Healthy Congregations, which we will talk about at length today. Phil Brichard has served as the rector at All Souls Parish in Berkeley, California since 2008. Earlier this year, his congregation celebrated the opening of Jordan Court, a housing community of 35 affordable studio units for seniors built on the All Souls campus. Phil is a trainer with the College for Congregational Development, and a self-proclaimed evangelist for implementing intentional development practices within congregations and other types of communities of faith. Alyssa and Phil, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you. you. It is really good to be here. Yes, it is. Yes. Well, I'm really glad this is happening, you guys. I um, have admired the work of the College for Congregational Development for a while, uh, when I first came into the Episcopal Church, my buddy, Jeremy Clark King, who I know uh, you know, and I know many of our listeners will know, uh, we, we had a fairly regular lunch, and uh, he talked to me at length about your work. Uh, I actually was supposed to come up for a week, uh, and this thing happened um, uh, COVID. <laughs> it didn't happen, but I look forward to I look forward to discovering more. Uh, and I've enjoyed getting to know Phil, the wrecker of all souls, uh, and uh, and also just others from your your team. And as I look, you know, as I look at our diocese, I see the college as just a great partner for developing the capacity of leaders. And I think it complements the work we're already engaged in with Vital and Thriving because we need good leaders to support congregations on this journey of um, discernment and innovation. And congratulations on your new book. We're really looking forward to talking about vital Christian community. Yeah, with you both today. But we want to start by taking a step back. We'd love to hear a little bit about how you came to this work. Where did your experience with congregations and the church begin? Alyssa, can we start with you? 
Absolutely. Uh, so I started working with congregations and being trained in congregational development when I was a layperson in the Episcopal Church. Um, I came to the Episcopal Church as a young adult in my early 20s and uh, found my way to St. Paul's Episcopal Church, which is an Anglo-Catholic congregation in the city of Seattle uh, in what's called Lower Queen Anne or sometimes Uptown. And they had a new priest there at the time um, that I found myself there around 2005 um, by the name of Melissa Skelton. And she is uh, she was the person who would be the kind of founding um founder, founding founder, the founder of the College for Congregational Development. Um, and I was her junior warden. I uh, was trained in um, a prior iteration of congregational development training in that role and started doing consulting work with congregations, got to help her launch the college in Olympia. And uh, so I found myself directing in Olympia uh, this for the first time uh, the same year that I was ordained to the priesthood. Um, and I've been working with congregations, both on the diocesan level, my own sweet place, um, and then with churches all all around um, the Episcopal Church and some Lutheran churches, different parts of the country as well since then. That's I love awesome. a great leadership development story from within. That's so encouraging to hear. Totally. And you, Phil? Well, uh, let's see. I think mine uh, started actually after I graduated from seminary and was ordained, the seminary I went to did a fantastic job of uh, having me wrestle with theology and history and liturgy. Uh, but in terms of developing a congregation as a leader, not quite as much. And so uh, most of what I had uh, figured out was mostly just by trial and error and some intuition. And then I was uh, talking with a priest from the diocese, then the Diocese of Olympia, and they had uh, a few years previous launched this College for Congregational Development, and it sounded like everything that I had been looking for uh, and just the, the reading I was doing and the conversations I was having. And so uh, I think I signed up like the next week um, with a team from All Souls, and we went to the college, and I was just blown away. Um, mm. The material was, there was a lot of it, there's a lot uh, that gets taught in the college. Uh, and some of it was totally new to me. I had never encountered it before. Some of it was really, again, it was like intuitive, but it put words and images to things I had a sense of, but didn't know quite how to describe. And it was all kind of together in this cohesive way of understanding what a congregation was and what it was for. So pretty soon I was like, okay, well, this is what I want to do. Uh, not just with my congregation, but with other congregations. And so after graduating, and then I started uh, training with the college and doing uh, consulting work, both within the Diocese of California and then in other places uh, across the church. And then along the way, realized that, the, that not every congregation, in fact, many congregations can't take the time away easily to be able to do those kinds of trainings, especially, you know, if it's a week long thing, sometimes weekends are more accessible, but I was really looking for a way for the ethos and the tools and the practices of the college to be able to be accessible for any leader and any size congregation, wherever you are. Awesome. Well, let's dig into the book. I'll start off just saying, I loved the way um, you engage with Rabbi Edwin Friedman, uh, who, you know, applied 
family the family systems thinking of his mentor uh, Murray Bowen to congregations to uh, spiritual communities. You pay a lot of attention to the to their concept of self differentiation, uh, you know, the ability of a spiritual leader to be an individual or a self while at the same time being connected to others, particularly when there are really intense relationships. Uh, I'm just going to say a word about this. You know, a a spiritual leader with a poorly differentiated self is either going to just attend to the approval of others and adjust what they think to try and please them, you know, like a chameleon, (laughs) or they'll assert what others should be like and pressure them to conform. A bully, and I imagine our listeners are going. I think I knew that priest, <laughs> or something. Or like I that. think I am that priest. Or I think I am that priest. Exactly. That's me. That's me. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, but a leader with a with a well differentiated self within a system can recognize both their need for others and stay calm, clear headed in the face of conflict and criticism and crisis. I definitely feel like as you describe that, you know, I feel that tension like in my body because I know that as a spiritual leader, I'm holding the perspectives of established members of the congregation and the needs of newcomers and the unchurched and trying in the midst of that to remain open to missional opportunities that lie beyond the church walls. In Vital and Thriving, we've been discussing the importance of a rule of life to undergird our ability to lead a church in the work of discernment. And I hear that in your book as well. I'm wondering if you could each share what you've learned about prayer and a bit about your own rule of life, how this shapes you for your calling as spiritual leaders. You want to go first, Phil? Sure. For me, I think a rule that I came to a number of years ago has served as a foundation for me, but has changed in its practice. I learned that over time, the way that I could be centered in God most often, I needed to have space for contemplation, for connection, and for creativity. Um, it, hel- it was helpful to me that it was in a th- it was three things so I could remember them easily, and they all started with the letter C. And so what I've tried to do is build into my, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's Joan Chittister who says you either um, make time for prayer or you don't get it. And so it's been really important (laughs) for me, for my spiritual practices to to carve them into my daily, weekly, monthly routine, uh, because otherwise uh, as I, as a parent, as a partner, and as a priest, it's like there's like 50 million things I would otherwise feel like I could, should want to be doing. And so um, the practices themselves have changed over time, but they always seem, I always try to have them get back to that, those, those three ways of being in relationship with others and with God. And um, that has uh, helped me more than anything feeling alive as I've done this work. Mm. Liz, how about you? I think one of the most important developments in the last decade of my life um, when it comes to prayer is just expanding the definition of it Mm. Um, to be able to uh, experience more of my life as prayer. So Mm. um, I'm also a mother. I've got two kids, two elementary school age kids. Um, 
and I've never only had one job. You know, I've always worked for the diocese and the parish. And um, so in a life that is defined um, by people responding with something like, how do you do all the things you do? Um, Hmm. Being able to mark moments of uh, peace and quiet when they come um, and to expand the definition of what, what and when and how I get to connect to God um, have been really key for me. So, you know, sometimes cleaning my kitchen is a prayer. Sometimes, um, you know, the 3 a.m. I can't go to sleep um, is a moment to connect to God, not a moment to be stressed out and down on myself because I can't go back to sleep, but as an invitation to talk to my creator. Um, and, and then when I fall asleep again, that's okay too. <laughs> Sleeping can be prayer. <laughs> so um, this, the, the ability to expand and realize that um, God is not elsewhere. That's a quote from, who's it a quote from Phil? Esther DeWall. Esther DeWall um, and her, her great um, book. And so, that's really been a consistent and constant um, touchstone for me um, mm-hmm. as I've moved through all the chaos, especially of these past, past, uh, what, what are we, we're coming up on three years now, right? I think it's 35. Um, <laughs> it's somewhere between two and a hundred years that we've been in this <laughs> yeah. pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the most challenging and inspiring prayers for me has simply been God is not elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yes. All my, all my sons are grown and, my prayers were mainly just thank you, God, that my children are grown. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm glad you found grace in all of your moments. Uh, Alyssa, you know that um, you've never worked with a vestry, a vestry or a bishop's committee that doesn't truly, deeply love their church. Uh, but you also say you've worked with plenty of congregations who couldn't tell you why they love their church or even like what their church is for. Yeah. Why do you think it's easier for us to love our churches than describe our churches? Oh, there's so many reasons. Um, There's historical reasons, which is that we haven't, um, especially in the Episcopal Church, built churches that are used to articulating their reason to exist. Um, It's been an assumed thing. So if you think about that iceberg metaphor where there's things you can see and things that are below the waterline, the actual purpose for a congregation has lived below the waterline in our culture for, you know, the past couple hundred years. The idea being that, you know, up until really the 1950s or 1960s, um, you opened a church so people would have a place to go to church. Not, not, you know, didn't think more deeply about it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, um, but also I think we're just, we're not taught to get really close to our intense emotions in this culture. And so there's also people who couldn't tell me why they love their spouse or who couldn't tell me why they love their children, even though those loves are some of the deepest, um, most core um, loves of their lives. Um, So, I mean, I, my dream is that church becomes a place where we do learn to get close to those big feelings and talk about them and articulate them where we can say, you know, why is it so important to love a child? Why is it so important to respect an elder? Why is it so important to connect across difference? Mm -hmm. And in a lot of places, it just starts with like, why do you love your church? What is, what is the articulation of that deep unspeakable feeling you hold that causes you to come, come every Sunday and pledge your money and be part of vestry and give your time. Um, so, I mean, that's part of what development is. That's the chapter one <laughs> in our book, yeah. you know, articulate your purpose. 
I so appreciate that reminder of like the church in existence with culture around it and the community around it. Like in our very first episode of this podcast, we interviewed um, Pat Kiefert and he talked about how like the church used to be in the middle of the village. And, you know, if you rolled a ball long enough, it would just go to the church. Like everything ended up at the church. And now our churches on are on the edge of the community and you have to like climb a hill to get to them. <laughs> and like they may not be visible. And it's certainly not that like everything's inevitably going to lead there. So I think that reframe is just such an important reminder for anyone who's working in congregational redevelopment and vitality. Um, yeah, thanks for naming that. So you you both write a lot about practitionership, which I'm assuming is a word you invented because word doesn't know that it's a word, <laughs> but um, I'm not sure of that. So I wonder if you could describe what is practitionership and what do you want to trouble about our general conceptions of, quote unquote, membership? Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a really important word for us because and I think this is something that we're pulling off of other people's work for sure. Uh, Dorothy Bass, you know, uh, the practices of living out the faith is definitely one for that has been a, a North Star for me in terms of how to encourage practice in individuals and in communities. I think what Alyssa described earlier about, uh, you know, up until the 1950s or 60s, we just kind of opened the doors and we're like, okay, we're here. Uh, and there was a lot of underlying assumptions to that. One of them being that, uh, that the most important part of um, participating in a Christian community was being a member of it. And it was important for us uh, for some reasons, right? Like denominationally, we'd be like, okay, we have 2.3 million Episcopalians, right? And this person's a member of this Episcopal church because they're not a member of the Presbyterian church or that other Episcopal church. And so it was a way for us to be like, okay, this is what we've got in, in, our, in our bounds. Uh, the challenge is that over time, what did membership mean? And I think that was really um, often unexplored in Episcopal churches. And so what we came to is like, uh, I think in the canons of the Episcopal church, it's like you have to attend three times and you have to give to the spread of the kingdom of God. Uh, it's a pretty low bar that also doesn't really have to do with development. doesn't have to do with uh, an increased relationship with Christ. And mm -hmm. so for us in this work, um, it was really important that people saw themselves as developing their faith in the context of community. And you do that by practicing it. Um, I think that there's a lot of people, and I don't just, I mean, this is like adults who've been in Episcopal churches for decades who don't have a, a sense of that this is actually practice, which means you're going to try something out and it's not going to work. Uh, or you've tried something out for a while and you need to refresh it. And so our hope is that people are actually being willing to take risks with their practice and do it with another person and try out something different and um, discover something new as part of it. And that it's not just about the individual practices, but there are also corporate practices um, that can keep things vital. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, one of the things that really clicked for me with this idea of practitionership was actually part of an Anglican identity piece that we teach in the college um, or Episcopal identity where we, um, I would find myself saying to participants over and over again, like one of the cool things about us as, as a denomination is that we care more about what we do together than what we believe together. 
right? Mm. That like, we've got this history of the middle way. And like, actually what we fight about is like how we pray and Mm -hmm. that rather than like what the content is. And so there is also this uniquely Episcopal gift of we care about practice. We care about the things we do. Uh, We care more about that orthopraxy than orthodoxy, um, Mm -hmm. arguably. I'm sure somebody will get upset when I say that. But but I think that's an asset (laughs) to our approach. And like membership doesn't matter anymore. Um, You know, the people who come to my church, they're they're not invested in membership. They're invested in how they're formed. Um, They're invested in what they, how they learn to live in, um, in relationship with Mm -hmm. our community. Um, so there's also just been a paradigm shift, I think. Yeah, I mean, most people, especially if they come to All Souls and they're new to the Christian church, they're not, their questions aren't really about like, uh, what does it mean if I'm a member or not? It's like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm going to be here mm-hmm. in this place, what am, I, what am I going to be asked to do? How am I going to be asked to live this out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just a different set of questions the further and further we get away from Christendom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I remember... Uh, I, I from Princeton Seminary, and there was a professor there, Daryl Guder, who like 30 years wrote this groundbreaking book, uh, The Missional Church. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing these diagrams of the bounded set and a centered set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that idea of, of rethinking how people engage with church as a centered set mm-hmm. uh, by, you know, or as Claire's favorite term, heliotropism. Yes. <laughs> right? Being, right? Being drawn, being, that's, it's what's drawing them, you know, the light that's, that's the light that's actually drawing them and shaping their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so speaking of life, um, I noticed that in this book, you don't define the health of a congregation uh, using numbers or pledges, uh, nickels or noses. Uh, what, <laughs> what signs of health do you look for you know, when you're working with, with parish leaders, what are some early signs that a community is being renewed? There's a climate, climate feel, I would say. Mm. Um, so um, a sense of, uh, this is a word Phil likes to use a lot. I'm going to, so I'll credit him for it, aliveness. That um, So when I, when I go to work with a vestry um, or a leadership group, some of the things I look for is like, is there laughter? here? Mm-hmm. Um, is there demonstrable care being shown? Um, how, how do they disagree? Um, how do they approach a problem? Are they able to uh, accurately assess their strengths and weaknesses? Um, is it okay to talk about that out loud with each other? And these are just vitality markers, I think. But yeah, I think that it, it has a lot to do with Things that are hard to measure. So we want, it would be so nice if we could just measure the giving and numbers and know if a place is vital or if it has the potential to be developed. But I think that the actual, the actual things that to look for are, they're squishier than that. What do you think, Phil? Yeah, I would agree with all the things you said. I would also say uh, at the end of a church event, how many people stick around to put away the chairs? Mm. Uh, when, um, when the person who is, uh, troublesome most often in the congregation, uh, acts out, what's the communal response to that person? Mm. Um, when, uh, new people come in inevitably bringing, uh, 
a different set of needs or vision or something like that? What's the response of the congregation to that newness? And I also, I feel like you can experience it, uh, especially uh, at worship. I think you can get a feeling for, and it's, uh, to me, it's irrespective of kind of worship, um, but you can get a feeling for the attention, the collective attention that the body is giving to that act, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, Anglo-Catholic or, you know, evangelical. Like, I think you can, you can get a sense of, of the uh, collective investment. So, yes, it's squishy. Uh, it's certainly squishier mm-hmm. than I wish it were because, you know, I love those numbers. Uh, I love mm-hmm. to count those nickels and noses. Uh, mm-hmm. But they don't. And they, they have a place in it, for sure, but not nearly as much as we've ascribed. Mm. I remember my first few years of being a vicar, I was obsessed with the data, really right up Mm. until COVID, honestly, if I'm being completely Mm. honest. I had Excel spreadsheets and I tracked everything and I could tell you off the top of my head, you know, what the first Sunday was. We didn't expand, you know, like Mm -hmm. our numbers. Um, And I think like COVID really taught me um, in that personal way. I was always preaching about this to, you know, congregations I worked with, but in my own, my own congregation, um, when we lost all those metrics, Mm. I realized, oh, like, that's not actually what's telling me that this place is alive. Um, Mm. Yeah. Something liberating in it. So even though you're not focusing on the like attendance numbers or the pledges necessarily, the book is full of like formulas and graphs and metrics and um, like really tangible tools. Um, so I was fascinated by the glyker Miller formula. I believe that's pronounced correctly. <laughs> okay. Yep. And actually had never encountered it before. Um, could you describe this for our listeners and talk specifically about the challenge of not being dissatisfied enough with our current contexts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is this this is actually it's actually a logic statement um, that uses letters, but it's about change. And I I believe and tell me what you think, Phil. I believe this uh, model really is about capacity building building capacity for change. Uh, change is mm. scary and our systems naturally and normally resist it. Uh, it is it is normal for there to be resistance to change within family systems, within congregational systems, within the systems of governance in our nation. Um, so what uh, the Glyker Danner Miller model, which was a model that was in, um, invented or uh discerned by um, a consultant whose last name was Gleicker, um, and um, and then later improved uh, by a consultant whose last name was Dana Miller. Um, and it was published in a book um, by, is it Richard Beckhart, I believe? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, is that change happens. So change, there's a big C, equals. It happens when dissatisfaction with the current state times um, a vision for a future state times first steps toward that vision when those things together are greater than the natural resistance to change in any given system. Uh, So if you write that out, it would be C equals D times V times F is greater than R, which sounds very, very technical. Uh, But what it really is, is just the formula for how to, how to help your system change. Um, So big idea with the X's, the times is, is that, um, if you don't have a dissatisfaction, if you don't have a vision, if you don't have first steps, then you won't have a change, even if mm. just one of those things is gone. Um, and usually, in my experience, dissatisfaction is what we need to work on. Oftentimes, we'll have a 
clear vision and know exactly what we need to do, but we're just not unhappy enough with the current state to actually overcome that resistance. Yeah, I would totally agree. And I would, I, I think that in my experience as well, um, leadership may be dissatisfied, but mm. it may not be a widely shared enough dissatisfaction. Mm. And so um, why would a human being or a community of human beings change if they didn't need to? Like from an mm -hmm. evolutionary standpoint, change takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of mm -hmm. attention. It involves anxiety. Uh, and so if you don't have to do it, why would you do it? And so one of the first kind of just ahas of this model for me and my ministry was the number of times that I had kind of absorbed the dissatisfaction of the system and not allowed it to be felt. Mm. And then what I realized was that I was robbing the system of the necessary catalytic energy required to change. Mm. And we're taught and to do that, right? Yeah. And I think absolutely I was yeah. taught to do that. Uh, and I think some of it is like when we kind of, we misunderstand what Friedman and others are saying about a non-anxious presence. Mm. Um, you know, mm -hmm. depending on especially your familial or cultural approach to conflict, you may want to, well, I don't want people to be upset with me. I don't want people to mm -hmm. be upset with each other. Um, and some of that is that dissatisfaction is essential. If you don't mm -hmm. feel that, you won't try and do the necessary work to change. Yeah, I think um, this is where a lot of priests uh, might overfunction. So um, to give you just a very, I was just talking this week with my associate vicar about coffee hour at my church, uh, which is a constant problem for us. How do we get coffee hour? How do we, who's going to bring the food for coffee hour? Um, you know, we no have other history. churches have ever struggled I know, with this. I know. I, um, it's, no a, it's really, it's an uncommon feature of my congregation that we don't know how to handle coffee hour over time. Um, you know, there's a history of like super competitive coffee hours in my church where people just went over the top and then other people didn't want to do coffee. So anyways, we were talking again about coffee hour uh, with my associate vicar. And, um, and one of the things that we realized is that both of us have this tendency to just go get food ourselves and bring it and put it out mm -hmm. so that there's something. Because I, I, I feel... I feel offended on behalf of newcomers when we don't have donuts or grapes or something to give them after mm -hmm. church. Um, but that what we're actually doing is denying our congregation the chance to experience dissatisfaction about coffee hour. We're mm -hmm. doing it. We're taking care of it. It's not a good way to keep doing That's not like a good, um, a good practice, but so we don't do that. We try not to do that. I'm actually, mm -hmm. we do sometimes, but, um, but to just, to not do that ourselves, um, generally there'll be like two or three weeks without coffee hour, you know, there's coffee, but no food. And somebody's like, Oh, should I bring food next week? It wouldn't occur to them otherwise. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You know, we're in this early phase of, of our work with congregations here, this first cohort we're about to launch the next cohort, uh, but it's a three-year journey. We call it the Partnership for the Missional Church. And the first year really is about discovery, uh, a lot of ethnography, you know, just, just listening, listening, listening. And then it moves out into listening into the community, uh, discovering our partners, you know, beyond, beyond the church. And I'm wondering, in your experience, um, you know, th this getting to know our neighbors, getting to know our neighborhoods. Um, why do you think that's important? What do you think happens when congregations 
begin to really encounter others rather than simply just inviting them in. Hmm. Uh, that I think is a critical question. Uh, one of the things that I think, well, we haven't had to, right? I mean, the, the question uh, I think that you asked earlier about um, why people can't articulate why they love their church. It's just because it's the water that they're swimming in. And like, how do you describe water if you're a fish? Right. And, yeah. and so I think in this case, um, the, our neighborhoods are just the context we've always been in. Um, uh, most often though, we lose touch with that context. And so as the world around us is changing, we're just kind of doing the same thing because it's been passed to us and it's worked for us. And so we want to pass it on to the other people, but we lose relationship with the people around us to say, well, who are you now? Uh, what, who are we now? And who are you now? Um, one of the phrases that we've been working with a lot recently at All Souls with new people and with these conversations in our neighborhood is we are trying to get in touch with longing uh, because mm -hmm. we have found that um, newcomers and other people outside of our community, their longing is our leaven. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, really important to, mm -hmm. to stay in relationship with that. And it can be uncomfortable. Right. Because it's going to be asking us to shift or to change or to see something differently than we've wanted to so far or been able to so far. Uh, but it's critical because if we don't, we again, yeah, we just lose touch. We lose sight with um, the people and the world around us. I think that there are congregations that have an idea that they are not in relationship with their community. And that's just not true. Like that what's true mm -hmm. is they might have a poor relationship or a distanced relationship or an out of touch relationship. But one of the ideas, and this is actually inherent in the model that we use when we talk about practitionership, is that everyone in your community is connected to your church, even if it's a connection that is defined by disconnection. I've never mm -hmm. been in that church. I don't know what happens at that place. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes the other way too. You know, church, our churches are embedded in real places. Um, and if, they're not engaging their neighborhoods, if they're not um, in touch with the changes that are happening uh, in relationship with those longings um, that Phil is talking about, then they're actually disconnected from their own identity and not able to make the good developmental choices that they need to make to answer, you know, really foundational questions about what are we for and how do we incarnate Jesus in this particular place? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it's vital because that's your community is part of your congregation. Your congregation is part of your community. If you ignore that relationship, you're ignoring a huge part of what a church is. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. So you write about how disruption impacts the existing culture of systems. And so we, our congregations and our communities have all been through this massive, all-encompassing disruption of the global pandemic. Um, we talked about some of the liberating sides of that already, but you're working directly with lots of different congregations. I wonder how you're seeing communities adapt and are there signs like the one we identified already that are actually hopeful? I think so. Um, I, you know, when the pandemic hit, I had this bird's eye view from my role as canon for congregational development in Olympia, where we looked at our congregations and it was like a fault line went through the middle for healthy congregations got healthier. 
they figured it out. Mm-hmm. They like the pressure cooker around. We can't meet. We can't uh, be in person together. Produced some amazing creativity, some amazing mm-hmm. uh, solutions to problems, and even ways to reach out to neighbors that hadn't existed before. Um, and the churches that were struggling, I mean, some of them just straight up disintegrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what I noticed was that it wasn't along financial lines. It wasn't like the most resourced congregations did the best and the least resourced congregations did the worst. It was about those things we were talking about earlier, those squishier um, measures of vitality. There were small churches that um, did amazing. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and are like, I think, ideal. I look up to them <laughs> in terms of how they managed to take care of each other. Um, and there's some big places that just went to pieces. So I think it's it's that in the model that you're talking about, which I believe is the planned renegotiation cycle. I forget what chapter that's in. Um, I think you were the main author on that chapter, Phil. Um, but one of the key concepts is that that moment of disruption is actually the um, best time to make positive change. Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, because, well, as long as the leadership is willing to, by leadership, I mean broader leadership. I don't mean simply ordained leadership. I mean, mm-hmm. especially like, because we have a role in that as ordained leaders, but really I think where the rubber meets the road is with the broader lay leadership. Uh, the matriarchs, the patriarchs, the the people who've been on vestry several times are not on vestry right now, so they're not acknowledged as an official leader of the system, but are absolutely kind of like the lymph nodes of the immune system. Uh, those are the folks that if if the broader leadership is willing to hold, hold the space and hold it open for change, then it can happen. But most often when we come to these really immense, very scary and uncertain times, we kind of close down and just try to go back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at least we knew that, right? I mean, this is the people of Israel longing for the melons and onions of Egypt, mm-hmm. right? It's like, we, it was, we hated it, but we knew it. Mm-hmm. And so one of the challenges for leadership in this time is staying open enough mm-hmm. to discern where the spirit could be in it, that you could do something new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank so you. Important. That is that it's been so great to have you both here today. I I'll just say to our listeners again, the book is vital Christian community, 12 Char- characteristics of healthy congregations. I was just looking um, uh, at the blurbs and one is from uh, our friend Canon Stephanie Spellers, who was just a couple of episodes back on this podcast, and she says about your book, um, you know, it it offers every kind of access to clear, tested practices and pathways toward authentic, transformed life with Jesus and with each other. So, and I agree. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both thank for you. writing it, and thank you for being with us today. It's been really awesome. But don't leave yet. We're not done. (laughs) We've come to our lightning round. It's a tradition here on our Vital and Thriving podcast. So you will have 20 seconds or less to answer each of these three questions. And we've never done it with two people. So I'm going to invite one of you to go first. So keep it quick. I don't know which one. (laughs) Yeah, so keep it quick. Yeah, we're terrible at at timing this. Um, Okay, are you ready? Totally. Guess. Okay, great. Uh, okay. What is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck, Phil? 
uh, Patty O'Galuli's apricot tart. Mm. Mm. Oh my God. Uh, baked fish, ugali, and greens um, at uh, just about any one of the meals and potlucks that my South Sudanese congregation serves. Oh, mm. That sounds good. What is your first memory of a worship service? We'll start with Alyssa. Um, probably laying across a pew with my head on my mother's lap, um, mm. drawing on the welcome card in the evangelical church that I grew up in um, while I slowly fell asleep during a 45-minute sermon. Mm. They preach longer in that tradition. Yeah. 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 I grew up with that. Mm. Mm. Uh, I think my first memory of a worship service was probably my baptism uh, and Mm. being baptized alongside my younger sister and having to wear a very uncomfortable, very, very wide tie. <laughs> are there pictures? Are there had. pictures? That's what Sadly, <laughs> unfortunately, there are. Unfortunately. Tell us the name of a church leader or theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to or learning from right now that we should know more about. And let's start with you again, Phil. I uh, just finished up the. Uh, autobiography, biography of Barbara Harris in conversation with Kelly Brown Douglas. Uh, Hallelujah, mm-hmm. anyhow. And um, she was, God rest her soul, such an amazing leader. And one of the things I came to appreciate about her, this is somebody who grew up in the Episcopal Church in uh, predominantly Black and Afro-Caribbean congregations. And she has she had the ability to call the institution into question and love Jesus and love the people at the same time. Um, as for me, I am um, currently reading Womanist Ethics and the Cultural Production of Evil by Emily Towns. Uh, she's at mm. Vanderbilt. Um, and I just, I think one of the insights I've been chewing on a lot this week is um, she talks about the imagination mm. of evil, um, how mm. uh, we tend to to kind of retreat into this idea of structural evil is like almost like it's a concrete building and there's just nothing we could do about it. But she mm. using um, stereotype images of black women um, over time talks about how uh, creative and imaginative culture is in its um, production of oppression and evil. Mm. And that feels like a really necessary backfill for me um, as I try to get my own brain wrapped around um, our issues with race in this country. Mm. Hey, thanks both for being our guest today, Alyssa and Phil. Thanks for having us. It was really fun. Thank you all. So good to have you. Yeah. You know, I was realizing you always set this up, which means I always go first. You want me to ask you what you like? Yes, then I can be first. Yeah. Okay, great. great. (laughs) Yeah. So, Scott, what did you learn from Alyssa and Phil today? Well, you know, I'll just say there are two things that, you know, kind of stuck out in my brain. Um, from Phil, it was uh, it was the image of, um, we were talking about, you know, uh, cultivating relationships in the community and mm-hmm. uh, for the church. And, and he said, their longing is our living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't know who coined that, but that's just that's going to sit with me for a while. I just think mm. that's really, um, 
it really is powerful. Leaven, you know, in scripture is often this um, negative image of something mm-hmm. that's, you know, spoiling the bread. But in this case, it's, it's you know, it is life. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, a lot of our congregations have been sitting with uh, Luke 10, you know, doing dwelling in the word around the Luke 10 text. And, you know, what when Jesus sends the 70 out, uh, it's their, their hosp- the entire mission is wrapped up in their hospitality, you know, mm. in the community. Yeah. Uh, that's great. And then, you know, I'll just say from a she said a lot of great things, but the thing that most struck me, honestly, was I just loved hearing a narrative of, of someone being in a community, you know, their gifts being recognized, them being encouraged, developed, uh, and becoming a leader. That's just, you know, I, I'm just, I'm so happy to hear that and to see the incredible ministry she's doing now. Yeah, that that definitely struck me in her narrative as well. And I was thinking, gosh, I'm so glad that Alyssa shared that story because so many of our leaders and listeners, more than the clergy, are lay, lay members of our community and just really upholding and celebrating their gifts and how critical the offering of those gifts yes. is to so, the life. So shout out to the Holy Spirit and to yes. uh, Bishop Skelton. That's just, yes. That's, yes. that's really, really great to hear. Yeah. And then I I mentioned in the actual podcast, but I just am still really struck with this idea of like giving ourselves enough room to feel our dissatisfaction with what isn't working enough that we can tap into our motivation to do something else and to try something new and to risk something that we're not sure about yet because we haven't tried. Um, I just think that's a missing part of the equation of taking risks and um, venturing into the unknown that uh, we ha- we haven't really talked that much about. And I'm really glad that we, we had a chance to name it today. Yeah. Well, and you know, that really ties in, Claire, with this, that we were talking about the self-differentiated, differentiated mm-hmm. leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the, the part of, I think part of leadership is being, you know, helping others articulate that dissatisfaction it's it's um mm. in by in partnership for the missional church we'll talk about it is the art of cultivation mm. right you're 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 we're cultivating uh, a vision and a big part of that is you know articulating that dissatisfaction mm. well i think that brings us to the end of another incredible episode incredible i'm so glad we get to do this together and Thanks. we have some more great ones coming soon we do. This episode of the Vital and Thriving podcast was hosted by Claire Dietrich Rana and Scott Sherman. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeremy Sherman as tribute to Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between Newbigin House of Studies and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. Visit vitalthriving.org for more information.